Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. This is Jeff. Uh, you, you always make me look bad. You always make me look bad. And our our guest today is a repeat guest. We haven't had him on uh, like for a long time. And I believe the last time I uh, announced him, I forgot to mention that he's a doctor. Doctor. So doctor. Christian Jacoby, uh, a distinguished engineer, a man of quality, um, and he has a lot to tell us about the new Tellum chip. I see what you did there. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> so, what is this Tellum thing, and why is it important? Um, <clears throat> Tellum is. Telem is the processor for the next generation um, mainframe, IBM Z and Linux One system. Um, and I guess that makes it important because <laughs> IBM Z is important um, and, and the processor is at the heart of it. So uh, it, it's got some, some really cool innovation uh, in it. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this in this podcast here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really cool uh, chip with lots of innovation focusing on you know, what our clients on IBM Z and Linux One need. So the last time we talked to you, you were talking to us about uh, accelerator chips. Is this just another accelerator chip? Um, When we talked about it last time, right, we talked about how we are incorporating accelerators into the processor chip. Uh, And this is what this is. This is the next generation processor chip. It has the cores that execute the normal programs, uh, Z architecture, instruction set, um, you know, running ZOS or Linux and Kix DB2 or MongoDB, all that good stuff. Got a very strong cache hierarchy that's optimized for large-scale enterprise workloads. But yeah, there's also new accelerators on this chip. We, we, we used to have accelerators like we talked about last time uh, for crypto and sorting and compression and stuff like that. And now we're adding a, a new feature here as an on-chip accelerator for artificial intelligence. So is that where the performance gains are coming nowadays? Because it seems like just north of five gigahertz is where things have been for a while. Is, are the is the real um, meat of performance gains to be had in specific optimization? Um, yeah, yeah, yes and no. I would say there's there's performance gains for just general purpose workloads, and they are no longer like your 30, 40, 50%, like they used to be when we were still riding the wave of, of silicon technology improvements, right? We're now getting, you know, a few percent, 10, 15 over the last couple generations, uh, Z14, Z15, we're in that range of performance improvements per core. Um, and that comes from optimizing the pipeline, optimizing the cache hierarchy, those kinds of things. Uh, and then uh, silicon does provide density so we can put more cores and more cache in each generation. But then there are these accelerators that we're adding that can give orders of magnitude improvement for certain tasks, uh, for things like crypto or compression. And I, I, I would say a lot of the value that comes from the processor is um, beyond just the speeds and feeds, comes from those features and functions and accelerators and how we incorporate them with our friends in the firmware and software teams to deliver end-to-end improvements um, for our clients' workloads. And AI fits into that category with a little bit of caveat here that it doesn't accelerate something that's 
for many clients already there, but it's kind of preparing the hardware for what we believe many clients will need in the future. So that, that kind of leads me into the, this question. Like, so I was, I was reading the, the Anantech article, and we'll link that in, in the show notes. Uh, I was reading that there's matrix math and 32 complex functions. So it's like um, high-efficiency softmax, LSTM, um, sigmoid log. How, how did that list of um, optimization instructions come about? Was there like, you know, like a poll that you send out mailers? Like how, how did, <laughs> how did a bunch of hardware people come up with the list of optimized functions um, that would go into this chip? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of AI technology um, talk there, right? There's, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> words around AI. Um, I'm, uh, I'll tell you, this is, this is a great collaboration between um, the systems team that de- designs the chip and the software teams that design the software stack on top and the research team, they, they have real deep experience in, you know, what, what AI models are using today, what AI models are using in the future or what we predict they will be using in the future. And then they have experience in actually building, you know, specific circuits for those kinds of things. And so that's how we started. When, when I started looking at this, I thought of, you know, neural networks as being something that mostly uses um, matrix multiplication. And we were looking into building a matrix multiplication accelerator. But then the research team, um, you know, we, we had many discussions and they educated us saying, look, <laughs> it's matrix multiplication is important, but it's maybe 70% of what AI needs. And the remaining 30% is other stuff. And if you don't accelerate that other stuff as well, well, then you'll be limited in your overall benefit. And so as we dug in and understood what that is, it's activation functions. And then you have these different types of activation functions, sigmoid, 10H, and so on. I, I'm not the right person to explain to you, like, you know, when you use which of these functions, uh, but they convincingly explained to me that we need acceleration for that as well for those different types of AI models. And I, I generally don't like to uh, to be a shill for IBM, um, but I think that this is a really kind of important point is it's not just, hey, we got this really smart uh, hardware guys and they, they came up with some really good stuff or we have really cool software people who are doing these things. But it really was the fact that you had the, the research guys, you had software people, and you had the, the hardware guys all kind of working together to define this is the way we really should do this and this is how it's going to be exploited and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah, totally. It's so, so crucial to designing end-to-end solutions that, that actually provide value and can be consumed. And um, this is probably one of the more complicated ones. Like we've had good success on things like the compression accelerator or the crypto accelerators with pervasive encryption. Um, the interfaces back then and how to build it and what exactly to build, not they weren't trivial, right? But I think this AI accelerator has a degree of complexity um, that you couldn't do without that collaboration across that wide range of, of skills. So you've got three different communities. They all literally use a different language to describe what they do. What was it like to kind of get those communities together to build the solution? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good point and, and, and a really interesting aspect of 
And, and it's actually more than just those three communities. Like even if you look inside each of those communities, you've got different disciplines like for chip design, right? We've got the physical design team. We've got a logic design team. We've got verification teams on the, on the software side, you have people who are like low level coding or writing, um, um, sp special compilers that can compile towards those, um, AI accelerators. And you've got people further up in the stack who talk about like what different types of models are used for different types of use cases and clients. And it's, I think it's it's a challenge and in a way though also a privilege and one of the most fun things to work across that wide spectrum and yeah there's meetings where people talk for 15 minutes and then you finally realize oh wait i totally misunderstood what he was saying i now <laughs> finally get this point right that absolutely happens but it makes us all understand the whole scope better and I, I, frankly i think that's one of the most satisfying things about working in this space is that we get to see this breadth and I'm just like working on one specific thing. So uh, obviously you know, you, you're talking about the chip design and you want as little as possible to wind up getting handled by Brenton. Yeah. I mean, I think we, all, we all want that. Um, as you move from like, you know, stuff scribbled on napkins to whiteboards to, to simulators, how do you verify that the, like the workload um, that you have in mind is getting the kind of performance boosts that were planned out and talked about um, when they actually like hit the silicon, you know, all the way across the development cycle. Yeah, so that's that's why I'm, that's why I'm saying this is actually even in each of these areas, software versus hardware versus um, research. There's multiple disciplines underneath that, right? And mm -hmm. so we we have relatively large teams like writing test cases to make sure things work functionally. They actually tested at different layers, right? We tested at just the logic design, like the end and or gates kind of layer. We tested together with the millicode uh, firmware layer, uh, you know, you're mentioning Brenton, uh, and make sure that the interactions between that firmware and the hardware are working out. And then we've got the next layer where we even prefab before we actually get real chips in hand, we can boot Linux on a simulator and then run test cases on that simulator. Um, and we've written test cases in C and, and or, you know, some embedded assembler to get to the, to the accelerator. And we can actually measure the performance. We can measure the throughput. We can compare. Uh, we can get detailed traces and look at where does time get spent and does it, does it match our expectations or do we need to change something to the design? So we actually get a lot of that low-level performance verification done running actual Linux programs just on the simulator that runs at maybe a few hundred kilohertz. So, something I was really curious about in, in reading the, the Anantech article is this, this idea of the virtual cache and the way that this works sounds like complete magic and mystery to me. <laughs> I'm sure it's not because um, generally smoke is something you want to avoid in, in chips. Um, can, can you kind <laughs> of talk about like how that works in Z architecture? Because it, it seems to be something that's very unique to our systems. It, it's, it's unique and novel, but in a way it's also you know, based on how caches have worked for a really long time. So if you if you look at a Z15 system, right, uh, or, or really any of the systems in the recent past, we have this cache hierarchy with level one and level two caches that are private to each core. And then the level three cache is shared across all cores on a chip. 
So that's 256 megabytes on Z15 for 12 cores. And then there's a level four cache on a dedicated chip um, uh, with 960 megabytes serving four processor chips um, connected to that one level four cache chip. And if you think about it, you know, um, the, the let's talk about the on-chip 256 megabyte L3. The workload isn't equal on the 12 cores, right? Some cores might be idle. Right. Some cores might be doing a lot of work, um, but mostly cache contained. Other cores might be streaming through a large chunk of whatever, a 100 megabyte segment back and forth. So they allocate dynamically, the, the cache kind of allocates um, an appropriate chunk of the total cache capacity, the 256 megabytes of L3 to whatever the cores are doing at any point in time. Mm-hmm. And so for Telem, we, we knew we had to do something different. The cache hierarchy uh, that we had wasn't really scalable into the new silicon technologies. And, and maybe that's something for later, but we, we chose we needed to redesign this. And we came up with this concept where we said, we really want as large a cache as possible, as close to each core as possible. And so we said, let's build 32 megabyte private caches for every core. But then immediately the question comes, how do you sort of imitate the benefit of that large 256 megabyte L3 cache that we had on Z15? And so what we were saying is, well, these 32 megabyte caches per core, they won't all be equally busy. Again, some cores Mm -hmm. are idle. Other cores are busy but only have a small working footprint. Other cores have a huge footprint right now. And so we said, well... Let's build a system where these L2s are interconnected and talk to each other and can basically say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of underutilized and the other one is light, kind of overutilized. When you push a cache line out, I can take it and own it and keep it on the chip. And that way it stays still very close, you know, couple, you know, like a dozen nanoseconds away, um, couple dozen cycles still very very close and so that forms a virtual l3 by the l2s recognizing um you know i'm more busy or less busy than the other l2 on the chip and then we said well if that works on the chip we can replicate that across eight chips in what we call a drawer and imitate what that large level four cache on z15 looked like again that large level four cache didn't split itself perfectly accurately across all the cores, right? It had dynamics in there based on how busy which chip and which core was. And so we're replicating that by the L2s of other chips becoming holding caches for cache lines that that other chips on the on the drawer are pushing out. Now, I, I hope that makes sense. Um, <laughs> I'm oversimplifying a little bit. There's obviously <laughs> a lot of details going into the heuristics of what you put where and when. Um, and a lot of modeling went into that to make sure that it actually works performance-wise. Um, but conceptually, that's kind of what, what's behind it. So so this would affect the number of times I miss at one of those levels to go up to the next, right? I mean, that's kind of the point. Is That's the point, right? The, the whole point of caches is keep data that you need close, right? And the more data you can keep, the more data you can keep close. So how much of the processing power um, is consumed by managing this? 
is that negligible or is that noticeable? Oh, you mean in like power consumptions? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, you have a large central cache on, on Z15 and that gets accessed every time your um, level two cache has a cache miss. Now we have much larger level two caches. So we miss that less often. That's good for power, right? Um, right. But then when you miss, you now need to query all these other caches on the chip. So that's a little worse for power. Um, but you know, you, you do the performance modeling and you do the power modeling and you look at the trade-offs and you say, yep, okay, that's the right investment of power for performance. And um, we end up uh, overall, you know, what matters isn't really the power for a particular function, but the power of the total chip in comparison to the compute capacity. And we're in a, in a good spot there uh, in terms of we can grow the capacity compared to Z15 and stay within the same power footprint, roughly. That that's kind of what I was I was trying to question you to say, right? Is I'm, <laughs> I'm doing all this more stuff, and I'm doing it at the same in the same power envelope. Yeah, exactly, and uh, that's important. I mean, more and more of our clients are really looking for um, efficiency of the data center, um, green computing, right? That kind of stuff matters more and more to clients. I was at a, I was talking to a client a couple of weeks ago where they were very interested in those kinds of metrics on IBM Z. Um, and, you know, we, we had generations where the power consumption went down. We had generations where the capacity goes up. We'll exactly see where Z next lands, right? I'm not ready to give like very much, you know, gory, you know, exact details of what Z next will be like. Um, but we're on a good, on a, on a good trajectory here overall. So we've talked about um, the AI potential. We talked about the caching. Um, and I know those are two very key pieces. What else is there about the tone that, that mm. people probably don't know about? So we're obviously still a little limited about what we can talk about. Um, you know, ultimately, the processor is just one component of a system. And we've only announced the processor so far as a technology preview um, and we haven't announced the, the actual system. And a lot of the values um, the processor enables um, beyond what I said about AI and performance will come with that overall system. Uh, but there's a lot of cool things we put in the silicon uh, in terms of security enhancements, in terms of RAS availability, uh, in terms of scalability in, in like sysplex environments and such. And so there's, there's more we will talk about in due time when, when we'll actually start talking more broadly about what the next system has in its capabilities. So, so what I heard you just say is, invite me back in a couple of weeks and we'll, then we'll talk. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun. I would, I would like to do this more often. Yeah, I mean, you, you didn't invite me for years. <laughs> well, you know, you were a busy man, a new child and, and uh, you know, st stuff around the house. So I didn't want to. Yeah, that is true. Things things have changed since the last time we talked. <laughs> <laughs> it's it seems like it's been like twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> time with a kid flies. <laughs> it does. So th this is your first time at the helm of you know when I when I see stuff about the chip, your name is all over it. This is your first time um, leading the design of a processor, correct? Um, so I. I guess my roles have grown over the years, right? On Z14, I was responsible for the, um, 
the core design, the actual instruction execution engine on the chip. And then on Z15, I did have sort of the, the architecture of the whole chip, um, but it was a derivative chip uh, with lots of good innovation there, but not something as brand new as the Telem chip. And so, yeah, it's obviously, it's a very different thing doing this for Telem when, when it's such a dramatic change for um, you know both the cache architecture, the AI accelerator, and a number of other things. It's it's pretty cool um, um, to you know stretch. I I enjoy the challenge of doing something new and and broader than what I've done in the past. So uh, th- this is really cool. This AI stuff is really cool. But you know, how is somebody uh, who's going to do business? How how would they use that on them? mainframe and why would they do it there instead of just doing it you know uh on their x86 platforms yeah that that's a great question um we've we've worked a lot with our clients to really understand their use cases and their pain points around ai and actually if i go back into like the pre-concept phase for telem we were discussing um what do we need to focus on do we need to focus on training uh, so, the, you know, the process of building AI models or inferencing, the process of applying AI models, um, where do clients want to do training? Do they want to do it on Z or elsewhere? Where do they want to do the, the inference? And through all of these discussions, what we learned is the sweet spot for us, at least at this point, is uh, to do inference on IBM Z directly embedded into the workload. And really what's driving that is in many applications, the need to perform inference with a super low and consistent latency. Uh, when, when you're running, um, you know, thousands of transactions every second, say, you know what, credit card transactions, and you want to embed each transaction with an AI task, you know, the example of the credit card transaction that could be um, fraud detection, or in the case of some banking transaction, it could be determining settlement risk or, you know, things like that. Uh, and you want to have the AI result available to influence the outcome of the transaction. Like, again, credit card, you want to stop the transaction if it's deemed fraudulent. Then you need to do it cons- with very low latency and consistency of that latency, right? You can't afford um, to take your fairly strict response time requirements and waste a bunch of that time on a variable network. And you can't waste a lot of that time in an x86 system dispatch, making dispatching choices of what gets you know, run through an inference accelerator when. And we know from some clients who tried that and they ended up being able to score, say, 70% of their transactions for fraud, but you can immediately see the business value that comes from scoring the remaining 30%. And that's what we can offer. We, can, we have enough compute to do low latency uh, inference with complex AI models that have, you know, the right accuracy for the task at such low latencies that you can directly embed it into your transactions. Yeah, certainly as somebody who knows that Jeff steals my credit card all the time, this this is very valuable, right? (laughs) That's a good one. He wouldn't be laughing if he didn't do it. So (laughs) you got to make your passwords more complex than just password with a zero. <laughs> hey, there's a capital P in there too. Come on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so this 
this will change the landscape of how applications are developed and workloads are shaped based on where these new accelerations are, are can take place and where the benefits are. Um, is that is that a fair statement? I think so, or at least new components of of applications that rely on AI. Like I think it's one of the important things around Z is that you can maintain your applications that have been in many cases developed over many, many, many years, right? And you can enhance them and extend them and call out into modern software components that then, for example, perform AI using frameworks like TensorFlow or something. And, you know, again, I'm the hardware guy, not the software guy, right? But when I talk to the software team, I hear about how we enable calling, you know, TensorFlow models from a COBOL application. And so that's the kind of stuff that enables enriching these workloads with these new capabilities. Yeah, I, I have to believe that eventually we'll get to a point where saying this application uses AI will be like a, a TV show saying it's broadcast in color. <laughs> in color. Like it's, it's I, I, I honestly think there. so. I, I truly believe that AI will, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back and say everything has AI infused. And frankly, that's exactly why five, six years ago, we said, okay, we got to do something. We got to get under this and understand how do we prepare IBM Z for that time so that when it starts, when the wave hits, um, we're ready for it. It's, it's funny. Last time you were on and we were talking about accelerators, uh, when you left, the, the, the thought I had was, oh, they've done some really good stuff with the compression and the crypto stuff. They're going to go after my kicks, my IMS, and and they'll they'll take some of the things I do off in there and and kind of really make it fast. But what what you've done is is actually it's almost like a, a complete state difference, right? It's it's so much more powerful to attack this kind of problem than to make some components of uh, an existing application run a little bit faster. I, I think so, but it's important that, you know, these applications that you mentioned, you know, the Kixes and IMSs and DB2s, they they are critically important to, you know, modern society. And it's important that we enable embedding AI into such applications in a hopefully easy to consume way. Right. Well, that's, and that's kind of the point, right, is that instead of just taking some of the more straight inline stuff and making it better. You guys have, have kind of jumped and said, Hey, we're going to, um, we're going to make it so that those things can not only do what they do better, but start to, um, add these new models and make them still the highly performant stuff, but do it with, with a lot more intelligence than they were able to do before. Yeah, exactly. And in, in a, in a certain way, what we're doing is we are, enriching the business value of those applications by enabling customers to put additional function like AI into those transactions. And, and I, this, this will probably be a, we can't say that kind of thing, but uh, I assume in, I'm assuming that development for this is years cycles out. Are you guys already working on the next thing? Well, all, <laughs> we're always working on the next thing. I mean, <laughs> the, the world doesn't stand still, right? We're thinking about, well, not only thinking about my, my team sort of in implementation of the next processor and 
there's small teams already working on the one after that. And we started like early conversations around the one after that. So hardware development is a super long cycle. Um, usually from like the first meeting to when a machine comes out with that hardware is like six, seven, six, seven years. Right. So oh, we're, wow. we're, we're working on um, a lot of enhancements and, you know, we, we obviously we can't pour concrete yet, but we're certainly drawing, <laughs> um, well, I would have said on whiteboards, but since we're all at home, we're not using <laughs> whiteboards really. <laughs> Virtual whiteboards. Virtual whiteboards, whiteboards, exactly. So for years, um, you've been doing this. You you must have the standard answer for people to say, hey, in this cloud world, who cares about hardware, right? Because everything's done in software. H- how do you get people to understand the, the value and gravity of mm-hmm of the change that you've made, um, especially in this space at this time. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody knows that that software that you're talking about runs on something, right? <laughs> um, and it, it, it runs on, on, you know, real, real computers. And what we're building is a computer that is enterprise class, like no other computer. And when you're running, in a cloud world, whether that is public cloud or on-prem um, cloud, um, you, you need the qualities of that computer underneath all that software that makes it sort of a cloud-managed system. And so I, I'm not afraid of, of that cloud talk because I know that ultimately it runs on something and the qualities of that something are important to to the workload, whether that is a traditional workload or a cloud managed workload. Wow, uh, we're not going to get better than that. That nope, nope. <laughs> I mean, as, as long as long as all that software runs on silicon and not on Brenton's firmware. Well, I mean, now I got Now, now I got to say something, right? <laughs> this isn't this isn't like you know Brenton's hardware uh, firmware versus the hardware. We are like th- this is what makes IBM Z such a great place and ultimately such a great product. We we are joined at the hips on those things, right? What what we do in hardware in cooperation with what Brenton does how we interact and define the interfaces so that we can get like all that stuff to gel is just really outstanding teamwork. We know we just like giving Brenton a hard time because we know his team members listen. Oh, that's um, that, that I'm on board with. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say the second time we've got on and we haven't been able to, to get him to just talk smack <laughs> about anybody. Right. <laughs> Try again now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, uh, we're well beyond the bottom of the hour here, and I, I think it's pretty obvious the conversation has shifted. Um, so I'd like to take this opportunity to th- thank you, uh, Christian, for, for being here, because this has been, uh, I think, a really awesome episode. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Glad to be here. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.